is Andrew Litton, music director of New York City Ballet, welcoming you to See the Music. Today, this is being taped in my living room because thanks to the pandemic, we can't do it anywhere else. So hopefully the sound quality will be up to your standards. Today, we're talking about Tchaikovsky's third suite. By the time the 44-year-old Tchaikovsky wrote his third suite in 1884, he was a very successful composer, having already written four of his six symphonies and such masterpieces as Swan Lake and Yevgeny and Yegin. Tchaikovsky would eventually write four orchestral suites, the fourth of which is very well known to New York City ballet audiences as Balanchine's beloved ballet, Mozartiana. In music, the term suite was originally a set of dances, and such Baroque composers as Bach and Handel wrote many important works in this genre. By Tchaikovsky's time in the late 19th century, suites were much less organized and were just a collection of miscellaneous pieces, often quite balletic in nature. When Tchaikovsky set about writing a new orchestral composition in early 1884, he was at first thinking it would be a symphony. By April, he was less sure. He wrote, I have been collecting some materials for a future symphonic composition, the form of which has still not been settled upon. Perhaps it will be a symphony or perhaps another suite. The latter form has for some time been particularly attractive to me because of the freedom it affords the composer not to be constrained by any traditions, conventional methods, and established rules. Three days later, he writes, the form of my future symphonic work has been determined. It shall be a suite. I shall not be rushing it, lest it should turn out badly. By the end of June, Tchaikovsky wrote a colleague, I am presently writing my third suite. I wanted to do a symphony, but it wouldn't come off. Anyway, the name doesn't matter. In any case, I've written a large symphonic work in four movements, namely, first movement, Andante, second movement, Another Waltz, I think that's so sweet that he says another waltz. Yes, he could write them like most of us just breathe in and out, it seems. But it, yes, it indeed is another waltz. The third movement, scherzo. And the fourth movement, theme with 12 variations. The premiere took place in St. Petersburg on January 12th, 1885, conducted by one of the most eminent conductors of the day, Hans von Bülow. It was a great success. Tchaikovsky wrote, Never have I had such a triumph. I could see the greater part of the audience was touched and grateful. These moments are the finest adornment of the artist's life. Thanks to these, it is worth living and laboring. The work started to be performed all over the world and was even premiered in New York at the Metropolitan Opera later that same year. Tchaikovsky started conducting the final movement separately, the theme and variations. As you may recall from my Nutcracker podcast, Tchaikovsky participated in the opening of the new Carnegie Hall on May 5th, 1891. Two days later, he conducted theme and variations there and had another triumph. This composer-led tradition of performing the theme and variations as a separate work was not lost on George Balanchine, who in 1947 choreographed the movement in a ballet called, appropriately, theme, and variations. It wasn't until 1970 that Balanchine choreographed the remaining movements for New York City Ballet, giving us the complete Tchaikovsky score in all its glory. 
For our 2021 spring digital season, we are showing a performance of theme and variations, so I thought we should explore the movement from a musical perspective. The opening theme is a throwback to 18th century poise and grace. think it is too much of a blatant oversimplification to claim that theme and variation form is the closest classical music gets to jazz. A jazz performer will take a tune and improvise a set of variations on that tune. A classical composer does the same thing, but of course the improvisation is written down. Now, variation one goes like this with the strings playing pizzicato the theme. On top of this, Tchaikovsky adds a beautiful counterpoint in the woodwinds. Variation two introduces the ballerina and Tchaikovsky sets the melody in a wildly virtuosic passage for the violins. Now remember the melody. And this is what the first violins play. Variation three features the quarter ballet ladies and it's a very traditional setting of the theme, very obvious to hear. With variation four, Tchaikovsky changes the mood dramatically as he reintroduces, in this case Balanchine, I should say, reintroduces the male principal dancer. is so balletic, it's very hard to believe that Tchaikovsky didn't conceive of this piece as a ballet to start with. And then suddenly, there's this big outburst and the low brass and low strings pound out the Dies Irae theme, which has, it's beyond me why Tchaikovsky decided to include this in what is basically a very happy piece, but it sounds like this. 
The Dies Irae, of course, is the Latin hymn for the dead, and many composers loved including it in their works, none more famously perhaps than Berlioz in his Symphony Fantastique, used quite uh, judiciously in the film The Shining to great effect. But also, Sergei Rachmaninoff was obsessed with this theme, and almost every single one of his compositions has a quote for it. What it's doing in variation for it, like I said, beyond me, but it does make that one appearance and disappears. Variation 5 unleashes yet another surprise. Tchaikovsky gives us a fugue in the great old Baroque tradition. While in Variation 5, Balanchine gives the corps de ballet ladies a virtuosic turn, in Variation 6, he assigns it to the male principal dancer in a variation that is a great chance for the orchestra to show off as well. Tchaikovsky, being the genius that he was, gives us a total contrast with the next variation, Variation 7. In fact, it's the shortest variation of the whole set and serves as a kind of introduction to Variation 8, and yet our theme is very much present. And it gives us a chance to welcome back on stage the ballerina. And now we're ready for her great adagio in variation eight. That cadence sets us up for variation nine, which is a solo turn for the ballerina. As Balanchine describes it himself, she dances vigorously and joyously to the demanding rhythm, her pose changing with quick elegance to the beat of the music, her points stabbing at the floor in response to the sharp attack of the orchestra. At the end of this variation, a fantastic violin solo occurs. And during it, the male principal dancer joins the ballerina, and we have one of Tchaikovsky's great violin solos that pepper all of his works.
at the end of Variation 8, when the violin solo finally comes to an end, Tchaikovsky gives us the most breathtaking music in the key of B major as both principal dancers finish their duet. one of the high points for me of this entire work when we get to that moment. It's just exquisite writing. As the principal dancers leave, the orchestra gets ready to give us the grand finale, which is announced by a big crash in the timpani. And guess what time it is? It's time for Polonaise, a grandiose Polish national dance associated with royal occasions. Tchaikovsky loved the Polonaise and used it often. Another great example, of course, Balanchine uses is in the final section of Diamonds, which is the final movement of Tchaikovsky's third, another Polonaise. And in typical thrilling Tchaikovsky fashion, he finishes the whole ballet as only Tchaikovsky can, completely over the top. Jean said of theme and variations, this is a dance ballet. It evokes that great period in classical dancing when Russian ballet flourished with the aid of Tchaikovsky's music. Thanks so much for joining us. Once again, this is Andrew Litton for New York City Ballet and see the music. <laughs>